This is indeed our last week of the campaign. Um, we've been focusing on the campaign for the last six weeks. This is our seventh week. The aim of this whole series was to encourage you to become better Bible readers and also to experience who God is and the great love that he has for us because he is a God who is faithful, keeps his promises. And so many people have actually told us that that exact thing is happening. They're starting to understand scripture in a, in a better way, in a more, uh, more clarifying way. And so we're just praising the Lord for that. This week, we're going to focus on the new covenant. Last week, we talked about the Davidic covenant and how God had promised an offspring to David who would build a temple. And that ended up being Solomon. But God also promised there uh, to David a, a dynasty, which means that he would have offspring um, that would carry on not only the name of David, but they would also carry on the important task of reigning over an everlasting kingdom and also of an everlasting throne. But God also said if any of the kings who came after David committed sin and did not repent, that God would discipline them. And the whole Old Testament history from that point forward is all about how the kings, starting with Solomon, actually did not remain loyal to the covenant. The kingdom was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was taken into exile by Assyria in around 722 B.C. The southern kingdom was taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar in about 586 B.C. When King Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple and uh, broke down the walls of Jerusalem and exported all of the nobility and very important people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And you know that story perhaps in the book of Daniel. And while they were in exile, having lost their identity, having lost everything that represented them that they found valuable and significant about who they were, the temple, Jerusalem, we actually read about a prophet named Jeremiah who writes, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now the question is, how in the world can such a people, when they've lost so much, how in the world can they maintain the posture and the thinking of God that he is faithful, that his love is new and his mercy is great? How do they do that in the midst of their circumstances being so bleak? And the answer is because they clung to the promises of God. And what God promised while the people were in exile and leading up to exile, God promised a new covenant. We actually read it in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 35. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then there's another prophet prophet Ezekiel, who actually writes about a, the promise of the new covenant in his book, Ezekiel 36, verse 25 to 27, where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, 
And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for gathering us together as your church and having studied these covenants for these weeks now, we ask that in this culmination, this moment, this morning, that you would do for us what you promised, and that is when we gather in your name, you'll be among us, and that you will grant us all the things we need to follow you, to honor you. And so, God, as your people, we ask that you would supply us in great measure the spirit to illumine our minds and hearts, that you would grant us the ability to think clearly about your text, your scripture that you have given to us so that we may know you. And so, God, would you grant us these things and even the things we don't know we need. Give them to us, we ask, for we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a whole host of other references that refer to the new covenant, but I'm going to trust that you're going to read about those in your workbook, right? Right. And so we're just going to look at these two. You know, there's two ways to think about newness. As you know, in our community, we have a lot of new homes being built, which means that previously they were orchards or farms or just fields, and no longer it's just a trillion houses everywhere. And so new houses are springing up, which means never before existing. There's a second way to think about newness, and it's this. It's when somebody has, gets a haircut or somebody gets married and you ask them, how does it feel? You know, maybe your, your hair gets cut short or you get married and it's like, how do you feel? And they say something like this, I just feel like a new man. I feel like a new woman. You don't look at them and go, oh, I, I'm sorry. I thought you were somebody else. I didn't know you didn't exist until this moment. You, you never think like that. Instead, you understand that the newness is that right now there's something which is new and different, but it is connected to what came previous. And so in the new covenant, we have to think of it in, that, in those terms. It is new. There is new things which did not exist beforehand, but there are still connections to the things that preceded it. And so what are a couple of the new things? In Jeremiah 31, there's two things in verse 33 that God promises that are going to be new. He says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. So in the old covenant, the law was outside of the people. It was written on little tablets of stone. So it was exterior. But now God is promising in the new covenant that the law, the word of God, will be written on the interior. And not just anywhere on the interior. It's going to be written on the tablets of their heart. Where before the old covenant was written on exteriorly on tablets of stone. The new covenant will be written on the interior of a human heart. The next question is, well, how will these promises affect those who are in it? How will the new covenant affect those who are in it? And that's where we find Ezekiel 36. And we see in verse 25 that God first promises a cleansing of idols. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Now, that's an interesting promise that is given in the new covenant. The new covenant is one of the aspects that you should expect to experience is the cleansing work of God to remove idols from your heart. Now, what are idols? Many of us think of idols as little statues made of ivory and wood and all that kind of stuff. But idols can be virtually anything. I love what Pastor Michael Lawrence, how he describes it. He writes, an idol is anything or anyone without which you can't be happy or fulfilled. 
An idol is the answer to the question, if I didn't have this, what reason do I have to live tomorrow? That's your idol. And so he goes on to say, we can make an idol out of almost anything, sex, money, power, people's opinions of us, security, comfort, control, convenience. All of these things can be idols. But our favorite idol is, he writes, ourselves. I am my favorite idol. You are your favorite idol. And we all want others to worship our favorite idol too. The fact is, he writes, we were created to worship. And if we won't worship God, we'll end up worshiping something else. But there is no human being who worships nothing. We all worship something. The question is what? And the new covenant promises that we will be cleansed of our idols, which means our hearts will be so reoriented and transformed by the word of God being written upon it that the worship that we ascribe to idols will be transformed. And instead of worshiping the things that God has created, we will worship God as the ultimate creator. And in so doing, our loves and our affections will re be reoriented towards God and others. Because remember, the chief idol is self. And so if God reorients our heart, then that means we no longer look inwardly and put ourselves first. Instead, we put God first and others. And that's why God says, love me and love your neighbor. That's what it means to be in the new covenant is to have the spirit in such a way that you can love your neighbor and love God just as he commanded. So how will that come about? Verse 26 and 27, he says, I'll give you a new heart and I will give you a new spirit within you. God says, I'll put it there. I'll remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. So what that means is God will give us new hearts so that our desires and our longings will be oriented towards God and the things of God. It does not mean that we won't enjoy the things of the world, but we will enjoy them for God's sake. God will remove our dead heart and give us a heart that is alive. Our passions, our interests, our desires and wants will be radically reoriented off of ourselves and onto those outside of ourselves, namely God and our neighbor. And remember what Jesus said, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself depicts what it looks like to be under the new covenant. And when we have the spirit, what will happen to us? Verse 27, that God will give us the spirit, put it in us and cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. The Holy Spirit is given to us under the new covenant and the effect of which is obedience. God will cause that to happen. Now, why that's important is to realize that we are given both a new heart, which reorients our longings and desires. It reorients the things that we treasure. But we've also given a spirit, which means not only do we have new affections and desires, but the things that we want and desire are the things of God. And we want to obey God, not out of reluctancy or hesitancy, but we are, in effect, eager to worship God because of the spirit that indwells us. So no wonder why Jesus says that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. The new covenant does not mean that there are no commands and no obedience. The new covenant means that those things are not drudgery. 
They are delightful to those who have new hearts in the spirit. Nobody goes kicking and screaming in obedience to God when they are in the new covenant. That's just what God promised. And so the new covenant is a profoundly inward-directed covenant that produces an explosion of outward action in the form of radical and delightful obedience to God and love of neighbors. That's what the new covenant promises. But what's interesting is the apostle Paul refers to the new covenant as the ministry of the spirit. The ministry of the spirit. No wonder he calls it that because we're promised the spirit to empower us to obey. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And what we're going to see is Paul's defending himself and those who work with him about their ministries, defending their ministry because he's being accused of twisting scripture. He's being accused of being unimpressive and unentertaining and not all that engaging. He's just a mere talker with no power. And I know what Paul goes through because I've had people tell me, you know what, Phil, man, if you could just tell more stories and jokes, I really would love your preaching. And the reality is I'm not a court jester. I'm not here to entertain you and I'm not here to tell jokes. You can go to Netflix and find stand-up comedians. This is church. This is the word of God. This is how people are transformed. Not by giggling themselves to death, but being reborn and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. All right, enough of that. So why does Paul, how does Paul defend his ministry? He says this in verse one, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, am I trying to defend myself and, and show that I'm worthwhile and I have it all together? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And so what we see is Paul saying, you want a recommendation for whether or not my ministry is legitimate? I'll give it to you. Look at your heart. Because upon your heart, written with the Holy Spirit, is authored by Jesus a letter. And therefore, what that means is Jesus authors a letter of recommendation that authenticates Paul's ministry. And that letter was written by the Spirit, and it's written upon the heart of the Christian. So if you want to know whether or not a ministry is real, look at a person's heart, for the outcome and condition of their heart is the evidence. The evidence that Christ, as the author, has written by the Spirit, the simple phrase, mine. That heart is mine. I wrote it, sealed it with the Holy Spirit, that heart is mine. And then Paul describes for us what the new covenant is. It's a covenant of the spirit. Look at this in verse 4. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God. Our confidence is in God. Not that we, Paul and his company, including perhaps Titus, not that we are sufficient or adequate or able or gifted in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency, our competency, our giftedness is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Now, what is the ministry of the new covenant like? He says it's not of the letter, 
but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In other words, the old covenant, the covenant of Moses, was the letter of the law, whereas the new covenant is the ministry of the Spirit, and it is not about death, where the letter kills, but it's about life. And so the ministry of the new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit, in which the Spirit gives life. And that's a huge contrast for the Apostle Paul. And then he's going to go on and talk about glory. Glory is the idea of beauty, grandeur, majesty, value, goodness, worth. And so how Paul puts it is this way in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, the ministry of the letter, the ministry of the old covenant, carved in letters on stone, remember that's how the Ten Commandments came, if it came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, because of its beauty, because of its grandeur, because of its majesty, value, worth, and that was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, have even more glory? In other words, wouldn't the new covenant, which is not about death but is about life, Shouldn't that have more beauty, more grandeur, more majesty, more value, since life is obviously better than death? I don't know anyone who would value death over life. And when we encounter people who would prefer death over life, we usually re request counseling for them because we all know that life is better. And so what ends up happening is Paul then contrasts the ministry of death with the ministry of life. He says in verse 9, for if there was glory value, worth, beauty, majesty, all that, in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. In other words, if you think about it, the, the letter of the law is going to kill you because we all break the covenant and we all are transgressors before God. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Now, if that is majestic and beautiful and awesome, how much more glorious, more awesome, more majestic, more beautiful is the ministry that tells you, you don't have to die, you get life. It's so much better. <laughs> So verse 11, Paul says, for, what, for if what is being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. In other words, brothers and sisters, the glory of the new covenant exceeds the glory of the old covenant because the old covenant was a ministry of death where the new covenant is a ministry of life. The new covenant has more glory because it's permanent. It's not fading away. And so we know when Jesus says, those whom he has redeemed, we are in his hands. And when we are in the hands of Jesus, he says, there is no power or authority that could ever pluck you from my hands. It's a permanent ministry of life, brought about, brought about by the Spirit. Remember, the brightness of the moon is always surpassed by the brightness of the sun. The moon is bright at night, but when the sun rises, none of us go, where's the moon? I want the moon back. We got the Son. We got the new covenant. We got the Spirit. Let's not go back. Now, what happens when the new covenant comes? What, is, what happens? He turns, Paul now turns our attention to the new covenant and really our hope and, and experience. And he says, since we have such hope, we are very bold. 
The hope is the hope of glory, as he says in Colossians. The hope of glory, the, the hope of God's promises coming to fruition. That emboldens us. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. The Israelites at Moses' time, their, their minds were hardened. For to this day, Paul says, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So when people read the old covenant, those who are under the old covenant, there's a veil that lies over both their minds and their hearts. They cannot see, the veil is on their minds, they cannot understand, and their hearts, they cannot want and feel and all this kind of stuff. So the question is, well, why is it that way? And it's because only through Christ, only through the Messiah is it taken away, verse 14. And if you jump to verse, chapter four, verse three and four, you can see the effects of being veiled or blinded. Paul says, even if our gospel is veiled, even if people don't understand the gospel and they can't understand it with their minds and hearts, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. To what effect? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the good news of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The blinding effect of the veil which lies upon minds and hearts of those who are perishing in unbelief, they cannot see the good news, the joy of good news for all the people of the glory of Christ, which is the beauty of Christ, which is the majesty of Christ, which is the grandeur and all of the worth of Christ. They can't see it, he's just some dude. He's some religious teacher. He's some, I don't know, just moralistic, therapeutic homeboy. But he definitely is not worthy of worship to those who are perishing. So the question then is, how do I get this veil taken away? How does Jesus become beautiful and majestic and awesome? How is it removed? How can I go from perishing to living? I'm glad you asked. Verse 16. But... When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now remember in verse 15, it's only through Christ is the veil taken away. So if you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. And that's how the Bible describes repentance. Repentance is the act when one turns from something towards something else. And I think the best example that we find in scripture is probably 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. There we read where Paul is referring to the church in Macedonia and Achaia, which is the Philippians and the Corinthians, he says, they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you Thessalonians. And how you Thessalonians, look at this, turned to God from idols to serve the living God, living in true God. That, brothers and sisters, is repentance and also what it looks like for the new covenant to come, come upon a people. They are worshiping their idols, but in repentance, they have turned from their idols of self and convenience and safety and comfort, and they have turned towards the Lord. For they see that the Lord is of more value and more beauty and more grandeur and more life-giving than these things. And when they turn to the Lord, it isn't just like, hey there. It says that they turn to the Lord in order to serve the living and true God. Because remember, the Spirit comes upon you and causes you to walk in obedience. Nobody can turn from their sin and their idols and turn to the Lord and continue to walk in disobedience. Nobody can do that. 
When we turn to the Lord, we begin to serve the Lord. And it says those who are waiting for Jesus from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come, that's part of what it means to repent is that you repent and you believe the gospel, verse 10. You believe that Jesus delivers us from the wrath of God, that Jesus is crucified and risen. No wonder why Jesus preached the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That's how you get in the new covenant. Now, what is the gospel? Glad you asked. God has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin so that he did not inherit Adam's sin nature that we talked about in the Adamic covenant. He lived a sinless life for us, keeping God's law in every way so that the law would be upheld for us. Jesus was also crucified on a cross to bear the curse of the law for us. So although we are guilty offenders, he takes upon himself the consequences for our law-breaking sin. And on the cross, Jesus bore the full wrath of God for us. And so Jesus died the just consequences for sin. However, that's not the end of the story. Jesus rose from the dead to demonstrate that he has all authority in heaven and on earth and that evil and Satan and death itself will one day come to a glorious and final end when he returns to establish his kingdom in finality and fullness. And so therefore, Jesus has done everything that is necessary to rescue sinners like you and I from the wrath of God. He has secured eternal righteousness through his obedience. He has secured eternal forgiveness through his shed blood. He has secured eternal life through his resurrection. And therefore, if you will trust that Jesus is enough and that he's done all that is necessary, if you trust that, then God will rescue you and ransom you from his just wrath because of your sin and you will repent of your idols and turn to God that you may be saved. And so I implore you, brothers and sisters, remember the gospel when you wake up day in and day out. Every day, recounted and recited the gospel, Christ is for me, not against me. And if you're not yet a Christian, I implore you, repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins and your idols, for those will never satisfy. And put your trust in Jesus, for whom we are created and in whom we have our utmost delight. And he will rescue you from the wrath of God because all of the wrath of God has been poured on him so you can be free. Which is why Paul then writes in verse 16, when you turn to the Lord, the veil is removed and now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. And we all with unveiled face, because we turn to Christ, we turn to the Lord, we have an unveiled face. When that happens, we are beholding the glory of the Lord. We are beholding the worth and the majesty and the beauty and the awesomeness of who God is. And therefore, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That's what's called discipleship. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, what is promised us is freedom if we will turn to the Lord. Freedom from what? Freedom from condemnation. Freedom from death. Freedom from unrighteousness. Freedom from idolatry. Freedom from slavery to sin. I've heard pastors use this verse and they talk about how we have such freedom in Christ and because of that freedom, you can do so many amazing things. For instance, they would stand there and hype up the crowd. You have freedom! And people start losing their ever-loving minds and they're like, ah! And it's like William Wallace and Braveheart, freedom! 
come. And you're just screaming and yelling. And then they'll go on to say, you have freedom in Christ, so you can crush your Pilates class. You can crush that job interview. You can crush that family get together. You can crush that difficult conversation. And people are like, ah! And I'm thinking to myself, if that's all that Christ has purchased for us on the cross, is freedom to be a good cook, that is wretched. I can Google recipes. I can Google how to have a good firm handshake in the job interview. I can Google how to do these other things of how to just dominate my Pilates class, but that is not what God has purchased for you. God has purchased you freedom from condemnation, from death, and from the wrath of God. So if we have a proper understanding of the gospel, here's what happens. Jesus becomes wonderfully majestic. Jesus becomes wonderfully awesome. He becomes so valuable that you can look upon his grace and mercy and you will say, I'll do anything for you. Not in order to earn anything from you, but because I have all that I need in Christ. Therefore, whatever, let the sword come. Let the famine come. Let the persecution come. For I have Christ, and he's all I need. That's when you understand the gospel. The Spirit sets you free when you repent and believe the gospel. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't die, wasn't crushed on the cross under the full weight of sin in order for you to crush your Pilates class. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. And now we're free. Oh, all right. How does the ministry of the Spirit of the New Covenant work? So if the new covenant is true, the promises are true, that God will give you a new heart, new affections, new desire, new wants, and the Holy Spirit will be given to us and we will internally have the word of God written upon our hearts, which will cause us to obey God and to be able to see the beauty and the majesty of God. Look at this in chapter four, verse six. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, the God who created everything, who spoke into existence everything, that same God has shown in our hearts to do what? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when you by faith cast your gaze upon the person of Jesus Christ, you don't just see a moralistic dude, you see the glory of God. You see the beauty of God. You see the majesty of God. You see the absolute, infinite, supreme worth of God when you look at Jesus and if you don't see Jesus that way you're not in the new covenant or else the scripture is a lie that's our options so we need to get in the new covenant now how in the world does that happen how do you get in the new covenant repent and believe the gospel we already saw that but look at the ministry of the spirit Ephesians 1 13 and 14 where Paul says in Jesus you also When you heard the word of truth, he's writing to Christians, telling us how this all came about. The gospel of your salvation, when you heard the gospel and you believed in Christ, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his word. That's why we have it emblazoned in our lobby when you go and turn around and look up for the praise of his glory. We believe that Jesus is infinitely precious to us. 
And so you receive the Holy Spirit when you hear the gospel and believe, you trust in Jesus. That's why Paul wrote in Galatians, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law, Galatians 3.2, or was it by hearing with faith? Obviously, this answer is hearing with faith. So let me ask you, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that Jesus is enough to save you from the wrath of God because of your sin? Repent and believe the gospel. And how do you do that? Paul's real clear, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, which means the other idols in your life are not Lord, you repent. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which is the gospel, you will be saved. That's how simple it is. If you simply turn from your sin and you turn to God and you trust that Jesus is enough, you will be saved from the wrath of God because of your sin. Now, I have to point this out. If you were to become a Muslim, what you would do is you would say, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet three times in Arabic. And boom, you're a Muslim. Or if you're Roman Catholic and you want to be saved and make sure you get righteousness, then you got to make sure that the priest is saying the right things in the right way, which will make the wine of communion and the, and the bread of the body of Christ literally turn into the blood and the flesh of Jesus, and that way you can get saved. Or the Roman Catholics believe if you say the right things in the right way, you can transform just basic tap water into regenerative water, which will regenerate and bring again to uh, life infants. And let me tell you, when it comes to Christianity... Gospel-centered Christianity, there is no magic formula. There is no incantation. There is no magic spell that you utter in order to change you and become a Christian. There, it doesn't, there is nothing like that. But the scriptures say time and time again, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. How? Confess Jesus is your Lord through repentance and believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. The gospel, just do that and you will be saved. It's so simple. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and regenerates you. He brings you to new life where once you were dead, now you're made alive. Titus 3, 5, that God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the re renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means to be born again, and that's why Jesus said in John 3, 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see. You notice the word see, veil? You cannot, if you're not born again by the Holy Spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of God, let alone be in it. You can't even see it. So repent and believe the gospel. It's your only hope. For when we do that, not only are we sealed with the Spirit, but Romans 5, 5 happens that we are filled with hope. It does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you ever want to experience the love of God, you can find it and experience it in no other way than by the indwelling Holy Spirit who comes to us as we hear and believe the gospel, repenting of our sins, and we are entered into the new covenant in which we are now citizens of the kingdom of God. That's our only hope. So repent and believe the gospel. Now, what does this have to do with communion? I'm glad you asked that as well. Read in your workbook, you'll, you'll see more detail there, but let me just say it this way. Every one of the covenants that we have studied has some sort of sign accompanying it. 
Noah and the rainbow, Abraham and circumcision, Moses and Sabbath, David and the offspring. And when we come to the new covenant, what do we have? Baptism and communion. Baptism is the outward sign that an inward circumcision of the heart has been performed by the Spirit, Romans 2. And then communion is where we take the signs of the bread and the sign of the blood and we say this body is God sending his one and only son in human flesh. And in his flesh he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And through that body which was crucified, dead and buried, he rose again with a new body. And he's coming back bodily. And so that you with this decrepit, decaying body will receive a new and glorious resurrected body. And the sign of the cup, which is the blood of Jesus, the sign of the new covenant, which is the promise of total forgiveness if you will repent and believe the gospel. Communion is not only a sign, but it's a corporate meal. If you see in 1 Corinthians, what's really interesting in chapter 11, where Paul talks about communion. In verse 17 and 18, he talks about the fact that the church comes together. The church comes together. The church gathers. It's a corporate meal. It's something we do together. And so we're to look outwardly and recognize we're not alone in this. This is not your private moment. This is a moment in which we as the children of God come together and eat a meal. And so it's corporate. Not only that, but communion reminds us in Ephesians 2.22 that in Christ we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's one of the effects of the new covenant is we're in this together. None of this radical Americanized individuality when it comes to Christianity. You can't be a Christian by yourself. Literally, that's what the Bible says. And if you want to, you're not a Christian. The Christian is the Spirit in you, uniting you not only to Christ, but uniting you to each other. We're together. That's why it's absurd to gossip about each other and slander each other. Why, yeah, it's my family. Why, why, why are you hurting your own body? Makes no sense. Communion is also a covenant renewal meal. In the Old Testament, the covenants were renewed from time to time where, again, the people would pledge themselves to God and remember his great mercy for them. And in response, they would commit themselves once again to God. So when we come to communion, we're, we're doing a, a covenant renewal ceremony where you and I are gathering together and corporately we're saying we are remembering the covenant and we are committing ourselves once again to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's what's so beautiful about communion. It's the reality that we have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. We have been made right with God through Jesus Christ. I think I have enough time to do this. Hebrews chapter 10, let me read this. Verse 15, the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, and here's the quote, Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Brothers and sisters, when we come to communion, it's not a time for us to get right with God. It's a time in which we remember that through Christ we have been made right with God. Big difference. Big difference. Lastly, communion causes us to look backward, inward, and forward. Not only do we look outward because of the corporate nature of communion, but we look backward to the cross. 
that Jesus was spiked to a cross and through his blood that was shed there, there is forgiveness of sins for all who will repent and believe. And we also look inward. If you look in verse 28 of chapter 11, it says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup, which means we need to pause and take inventory. Am I in the new covenant? And if not, repent and believe the gospel. And if so, praise God. And as Martin Luther says, continue to live in repentance for all of life is repentance. And continue to believe the gospel. And then we look forward because this is what it says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 26. Paul says, I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. First, First Thessalonians 1.10 says, we are waiting for his son from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. That's what this meal is all about. That's how it signifies the new covenant. And so we have the privilege today to spend some time at the Lord's table celebrating Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So, Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you, God, that we were able to wake up and be here. God, I pray that as we as a church come together to celebrate communally this communion I pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that you would pour out the spirit in abundance, that we would have unveiled face and eyes, and that we would be able to see your glory and your beauty and your majesty, and you would do these things for us because you promised them in the new covenant. So, God, I pray for those who are not yet in the new covenant. God, would you grant them repentance that they may repent and believe the gospel. And for those of us who know you, may we spend this time celebrating all that you are for us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.